Um, I feel a bit rusty. It's been a while, Brian. It felt strange today to get into podcast mode again. It has been a while, Jackie. <laughs> did you recover from the madness of election 2020? Did you get any bit of a break, any I bit of a wind did. down? I did. I had a nice week off, I have to say, and kind of just completely relaxed, tuned out of everything and, yeah, switched the brain off for a little bit. And it was it was quite hard to get back into the flow of things again. Did you get any break? Got a bit of a break, but it's been busy, you know. I mean, mm. But that's always the way, you know. You get that initial kind of lull period, I suppose, when they announce the results. Uh, but it's been a kind of a crazy, weird transition, as we all know. Donald Trump continuing to claim yes. without evidence that he's the rightful winner, that there was voter fraud. All the while, Joe Biden's been pressing ahead with his cabinet picks and his transition. And then Joe Biden goes and trips over his dog and ends up in hospital after fracturing his foot. So it's been a crazy few weeks. Yeah, and a couple of people have been asking us as well, you know, what is the story with states of mind? We're going to continue for another couple of weeks, probably right up until Inauguration Day, because we still have a lot to talk about wrap up the Trump presidency but also look forward to the Biden presidency and all the challenges that come with that. Absolutely. Still lots to talk about. Still lots going on. Exciting few weeks have passed and there's very exciting few weeks ahead. So there's still plenty ahead. From RTE News, this is States of Mind. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down. You won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. In 47 months, I've done more than you've done in 47 years, Joe. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire, inside a train wreck. Ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. Your U.S. election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. I think the America first will be expressed in a profoundly different way. Just a quick question about Ireland, if that's okay. I know you you can ask about Ireland anytime you want. Uh, I worked for George H.W. Bush and James Baker. It was the last time in my judgment that America was admired, respected, and, and even feared. America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. Oh gosh, I really need to change that intro. I totally forgot. I'll yeah, do that at the weekend. Sounds a bit dated now. <laughs> yeah. I promise. I'll do it at the weekend. Anyways, America first. That was the message for the last four years with Donald Trump in the White House. There was nationalism, the ditching of international agreements and keeping allies at arm's length. Yeah, I think Donald Trump, when it comes to foreign policy, he'll be remembered as the US president who praised and tried to forge alliances with autocrats and traditional enemies, the likes of Kim Jong-un of North Korea, Vladimir Putin of Russia, Xi Jinping of China, while at the same time, as you say, Jackie, sort of alienating the US from traditional allies, criticizing the likes of the European Union and NATO. He pulled America out of the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accord, the World Health Organization, trade deals, nuclear treaties with Russia. But I will say this much for Donald Trump, whether you liked it or not, most of those things, he said he was going to do them and he did them And he kept his promises. It was unilateralist, erratic and sometimes personal too, usually via social media and Twitter. Absolutely. It was all about diplomacy by tweet. And most of those big foreign policy moves that I mentioned a little earlier were all announced on Twitter. And Twitter, of course, used to insult or praise world leaders, depending on how he was feeling. Kim Jong-un, I think, is the best evolution. We went from calling him short, fat 
a madman, famously, of course, little rocket man, and that at one point, we'll remember that Donald Trump boasted on Twitter that his nuclear button was much bigger than Kim Jong-un's. Oh, God. There was also some achievements, though, in the Trump administration. The Israel and United Arab Emirates Normalization Agreement, a.k.a. the Abraham Accords Peace Agreement, which was initially agreed in a joint statement by the US, Israel and the UAE. Yeah, and I think this is a case of credit where credit is due. A lot of foreign policy analysts would say that that was a big deal. It normalised what had been long informal but robust foreign relations between the two countries. The UAE became the third Arab country after Egypt and Jordan to agree to formally normalise its relationship with Israel. For its part, Israel agreed to suspend plans for annexing part of the West Bank. Now there is Joe Biden, the US president-elect. He looks at America's role in a more traditional way, I think it's fair to say, Brian. For starters, it's doubtful he will use Twitter for that non-traditional indirect diplomacy. He favours institutions and politics established uh, following the Second World War and based on shared Western democratic values. Back in January 2020, which seems like a lifetime ago before he was even the front runner for the Democratic nomination and pre-COVID lockdowns, Joe Biden wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs magazine called Why America Must Lead Again. It's America first, but it means something different this time. He said that America is back, ready to lead the world. Ah, yes. Foreign Affairs magazine, Jackie. It's like the smash hits for the foreign (laughs) policy nerd, isn't it? And in that article, Joe Biden said that the credibility and influence of the US in the world had diminished since Barack Obama left office in 2017. He said that Donald Trump had belittled, undermined, and in some cases abandoned US allies and partners. He said that trust in institutions is down, fear of the other is up. So obviously a lot has changed, as I said, since January 2020 with the coronavirus and the economic state that the country is in. But at the heart of it all, Joe Biden is framing his presidency as a major reset to what he says is America's damaged image. And he'll be the one going against what is seen as a rising tide of authoritarianism around the world. Yeah, and Joe Biden has vowed from day one to change things, to undo some of the things that Donald Trump did over the last four years when it comes to foreign policy. He wants from the early days of his presidency to see the US rejoining institutions and agreements like the World Health Organization and the Paris Climate Accord. And some of that, you know, some of those things he wants to accomplish on the world stage may be done pretty swiftly. But otherwise, much of his first term may be doing the quiet and unglamorous work of getting allies to work with the US again. Remember, Joe Biden comes into this presidency with a deep foreign policy CV. He chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and worked hard on foreign policy during his time as vice president. He did, yeah, and he'd relationships with foreign leaders and throughout his campaign he emphasised the need to work with allies and for democracies and in particular to work against threats posed by the likes of China. Joe Biden took on a big role in Barack Obama's foreign relationships. He worked with Ukrainian officials following violence there. He's been an advocate for drawing down the war in Afghanistan and has been more reluctant, we'll say, to use military force in places like Libya. Critics, however, particularly progressive ones, say that that long resume, those years of foreign policy involvement, 
has had its fair share of missteps, including his initial support for the Iraq war and post-war policies that he pursued as vice president. But I think overall, what we're going to see with Joe Biden, a centrist kind of internationalist approach that seeks to balance U.S. interests with values and his team will largely reflect that worldview. Yeah, because in comparison, vice president-elect Kamala Harris doesn't have a clear path with foreign policy yet, as she doesn't have much experience working in that area. Because she remember, she only became a senator in 2016. So Joe Biden, he has already announced some members of his team over the past couple of weeks. And those picks do have a lot to say about he how he views the future of the United States. He said that this team will bring back some stability and predictability after four years of Trump. Today... I'm pleased to announce nominations and staff for critical foreign policy and national security positions in my administration. It's a team that will keep our country and our people safe and secure. And it's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it, once again sit at the head of the table, ready to confront our adversaries and not reject our allies, ready to stand up for our values. In fact, in calls from world leaders that I've had, about 18 of them or 20 so far, I'm not sure the exact number, in the weeks since we won the election, I've been struck by how much they're looking forward to the United States reasserting its historic role as a global leader. But it's also a rebuilding of the country's foreign service too. It is. And I was in Wilmington, Delaware, just at the end of last week. Wilmington, of course, Joe Biden's hometown, rather, at the end of last month, when Joe Biden formally announced his foreign policy and national security team. And he said it was a team that will keep the country and its people safe and a team that reflects the fact that America is back, back as the leader on the world stage once again. And many members of the team worked in similar positions in the previous Barack Obama administration. They were deputies or they were assistants to the jobs that they're now getting. And this, I suppose, was a different approach from the Donald Trump style of doing things where, for example, look at his first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, an oil millionaire that he appointed that didn't really have any foreign policy experience, whereas Joe Biden is going down the more experienced route of people who have been in government before. Antony Blinken is his nominee for Secretary of State. He was a longtime foreign policy aide and foreign policy experts. And people would say that Joe Biden now is emphasizing competence over political celebrity. So Antony Blinken would be a former deputy secretary of state and deputy national security advisor under Barack Obama. He would know the State Department very well. And you mentioned the whole idea of rebuilding, Jackie, and that's one of the things that many in the Foreign Service here in the U.S. would say is needed, that it's been carved out, that morale is low, that it needs to be rebuilt And some would say that this Anthony Blinken is like the opposite of the current man in the job, Mike Pompeo. But Brian, isn't it a risk bringing in a team that have a long record in Washington? These are the people that so many voters rebelled against in 2016. But also they will have a lot to answer for, for policies they have supported in the past. Absolutely. And critics of Joe Biden's picks have said, look, you're just rehashing old Obama appointees. And this will just be like an Obama third term, if you will. The outgoing Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said that some of these nominees have been living in fantasy land and they'd led from behind when it came to their dealings with Iran. And I suppose that's the balance. Do you bring in fresh blood, brand new names to start from scratch, or do you go down the old route 
of people who have experience in government. And then, of course, everybody starts looking at, well, what did they do when they were in government? For example, Irish-American Jake Sullivan, he will be Joe Biden's national security advisor. He worked for Hillary Clinton, and she would be seen, of course, as someone who was more embracing of a more hawkish foreign policy stance than Joe Biden. Brian, there is so much to talk about in relation to the challenges that lie ahead for Joe Biden. So we're going to bring in Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace to guide us along. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us uh, on States of Mind. Some people would say that America's reputation on the world stage has plummeted during the Trump years but some in the Middle East would disagree with that um, as his administration helped broker a peace deal between Israel and some Arab nations. What do you say to that? You know I think the United States has taken a severe reputational hit. Uh, There's no question about it. Um, As much frankly as a consequence of the way the current president has dealt with uh, the economic and uh, pandemic challenges that now confront the United States, but also in the way that he's tethered uh, the American national interests or subordinated it to his own political interests, uh, personal sensibilities, and vanities. Our our allies have profound doubts about our reliability and our predictability. They wonder whether or not uh, we can talk about this, uh, the Biden administration in itself won't be a transition back to another Republican president that may run a candidate, uh, if it's not Donald Trump, someone is less objectionable than Donald Trump, but uh, uh, more appealing or as appealing to the Republican base. And let's not forget uh, that Donald Trump received the second highest number of votes in a presidential election of any candidate in the last hundred years. Uh, Joe Biden receiving the first, plus he received Um, the greatest percentage of the non-white vote of any Republican candidate in 60 years. So there is a sense, I think, among our allies, for sure, that that America remains, in many respects, um, volatile and unstable. Uh, Our adversaries, of course, uh, have taken this um, to their advantage and used uh, the president's fascination with uh, authoritarian powers and his own sort of... um, volatile and combustible uh, views on foreign policy to take advantage uh, of the United States. And China is rising. Its economy is improving at a much greater scale. And even if the Chinese are fabricating their numbers with respect to COVID, it's clear they may have been the source of this infection. But the reality is they've coped with it a lot better than uh, than we have. So, uh, yes, there's no question that um, America has taken a, represent- a reputational uh, Hit. I don't. I would only say to you, though, I remember uh, having been part of the second Bush administration the transition from Bush to to Biden. Uh, I'm sorry, to Obama, um, and uh, how quickly um, the Europeans, in particular, seemed to recover from um, um, America's unilateral actions in in Iraq, uh, and um, how quickly Obama managed to restore, to a large degree trust certainly of the Europeans uh, in American leadership. Uh, I suspect given the problems Biden confronts at home, uh, some of that uh, will be as easy, but a lot of it's going to be as, uh, much more difficult. Yeah. Do you do you think Joe Biden has a lot of work to do here to gain back that trust? Uh, is it easy? Is it as easy to get back that trust this time around? 
Well, it, it, it'll be interesting to see. Remember, the preoccupation with this president and the way he his presidency will be judged has very little to do with what happens beyond American shores. I don't think there's a single foreign policy issue I could identify that is more threatening, more damaging, more potentially devastating to the future of this republic than the problems that we confronted home. That said, Biden knows all these people. He's a pragmatic internationalist. I think the bar is so low in so many respects. And remember that the, the that Obama received a Nobel, which he didn't even think he deserved, largely because he wasn't George W. Bush. So I think in many respects, the Europeans, divided as they are, will welcome him. And um, rejoining Paris climate, rejoining the WHO, strengthening relations with the NATO allies, all of these things, I think, uh, um, we, these are this is low-hanging fruit. The harder stuff is what to do about uh, America's adversaries and some of the more intractable problems that confront the United States and the international community. Can I ask you on that point, Aaron, about Russia? You could write a whole book on the complicated, controversial, bizarre relationship between the Trump administration and Russia. Allegations of collusion during the campaign, cozying up to Vladimir Putin. But at the same time, there were sanctions from time to time on Russia. How do you think Joe Biden will deal with Russia? How will his dealings differ from those of the Trump administration? I mean, I don't think there'll be a personal, what I call a personal zone of immunity the president, for reasons that I still don't understand, and I'm not sure anyone understands. I mean, the common conventional theory was that Vladimir Putin had something over Donald Trump, and as a consequence of that, whether it was financial or some other trans personal transgression, and that Trump was indebted to him and would not criticize him personally. You know, a, a, a political drama was that was on display at the Helsinki summit, in which an American president almost kneeled uh, before a Russian leader. Um, I, I think that Biden will toughen the relationship with the Russians. I mean, there, there are no less than 46 sanctions packages that the Trump administration levied against Putin. Uh, and I think that the administration will continue. There'll be no reset here. I mean, I don't believe there is going to be a reset with Russia or China in large part because both of these countries require a certain amount of... Um, uh, certain a kind of dynamic that they need the United States as an adversary to mobilize political elites to uh, reinvigorate uh, nationalism or party unity in the case of China. I I think there there are structural impediments for what I call any sort of profoundly meaningful detente. It'll probably, frankly, on the part of the Biden administration of both China and Russia, it'll be the two D's. It'll be detente. Um, um, on on one hand, and uh, an effort to uh, you know deny both Russia and China advantage in a sort of cooperative, competitive relationship, and an effort to look for areas of cooperation with both. With the Russians, arms control, the extension of New START would be important. With the Chinese, any number of areas, um, global health would be would would clearly be one. And even the global economy. But um, these states are going to be competitive with the United States. And I see no, no, these will be, in short, sorry to drone on, these will be transactional uh, arrangements, not transformational ones. Could we see Joe Biden calling out Russia for specific transgressions, election interference, bounties on U.S. soldiers, or is it too late for all that? Would you just want to leave that in the past and move on? I mean, I'm not sure. In terms of election interference, I think the good news for the United States is none of the nightmare scenarios, either internally or externally, that uh, many predicted occurred in the wake of this election. 
But I think the issue of, of, of Russian meddling will continue to be uh, a, a an issue for the Biden administration. And I guarantee you that they're going to devote a lot more attention to issues like election security, cybersecurity than the previous administration did. Um, whether or not, you know, what you won't see, I think, is this sort of unpredictable, um, spontaneous sorts of uh, advances and then reversals, usually by tweet that you saw and that you still see during uh, during the, the tenure of this administration. There'll be an effort, and I think the Chinese and Russians recognize this. It has a downside and an upside. On one hand, they look at Joe Biden as a sort of a pragmatic internationalist um, uh, who, who's going to produce a sort of predictable policy. On the other hand, they worry that that same pragmatic internationalism may well be able to do what Trump wasn't able to do, which is to build effective coalitions uh, in order to deal both with Russia and China. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. And I think, I think both, if I had a guess, uh, were quickly tiring of Donald Trump, particularly Putin. And I think in many respects, if he had a bet, uh, I think he would have uh, bet on Biden. And I think he thinks Biden's a better alternative. In relation to Iran, Aaron, Joe Biden said that he would rejoin the landmark Iran nuclear deal. For our listeners, a reminder that the deal gave Iran sanctions relief in exchange for scaling down its nuclear programme. But Donald Trump withdrew from that deal in 2018, saying the agreement was too narrow to cope with the threats posed by Iran and was too weak in its limits on nuclear activity and reimposed those sanctions, resulting in Iran restarting its enrichment of uranium. Some say Iran is now closer to a nuclear weapon than it was when Trump came to office. And the window for Joe Biden to rejoin that accord is short, though. It's a narrow window window because we see the latest from Iran after the assassination of its top nuclear scientist in November that it has responded by enacting a law ordering an immediate ramping up of its enrichment of uranium to levels closer to weapons-grade fuel. But that measure also requires the expulsion of international nuclear inspectors if American sanctions are not lifted by the uh, by early February. I just want to get your take on that. You know, I think the, the assassination of Fakhrizadeh uh, and the Iranian response to it, and remember they are, they are, they are also dealing with uh, uh, getting even with, uh, with the American assassination of Qasem Soleimani in January. I think it's going to make it harder for the Biden administration to simply re-enter. I mean, at this point, there's simply no way of knowing what additional requirements the Iranians uh, are prepared to impose. Compensatory measures, for example, for all of the damage that was done as a consequence of reimposition of sanctions from an agreement from which the United States withdrew. That's one issue. Uh, <clears throat> and number two, what new requirements the Biden administration may well want to impose or need to impose, um, given the fact that we're not where we were in 2015. Um, both the president-elect and uh, his new secretary of state, soon to be secretary of state, if confirmed by the Senate, have talked about a longer and stronger JCPO. You know, what that means is un- unclear. You know, it would be nice to assume that if the Iranians were prepared to uh, return to the agreement, that the administration would return as well. Uh, they would not. Neither would impose on, onerous conditions, and then they would, they would, 
be prepared to negotiate, if possible, a follow-on agreement. What I what I do not understand, and I've not been able to wrap my head around this, is the other elements that critics of the agreement point to. In some respects, very legitimately, the development of Iran's ballistic missile technology, and to use their description, uh, which is is partly true for sure, Iran's malign activities in the region. People believe that some sort of comprehensive agreement between the U.S. and Iran is possible that 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 will cover all of these areas. And frankly, much like our relations with Russia and China, I don't. I I, I wonder how how realistic and real that actually is. I, I I see these relationships between America and its adversaries as not ready for the kind of trans formations that would allow these comprehensive agreements if Iran agreed to to all of to an agreement on all of those three areas it would become a different country and I just with a different foreign policy and I just don't believe much like China and Russia Beijing and Moscow Tehran needs the United States as a sort of adversary in order to maintain its <clears throat> revolutionary character, maintain its nationalist credentials, mobilize its elites, and satisfy the security <clears throat> uh, and um, and military elites that uh, are now the controlling force in the country. Aaron, staying in the Middle East, you mentioned at the top that when you look back on the foreign policy achievements of the Trump administration or the big foreign policy issues, they're almost hard to think of because there was so much focus on America first and so much focus on domestic issues. But I suppose credit where credit is due. If we look at these normalization of agreements, these normalization of relations that we saw between Israel and Arab states over the last few months that Donald Trump oversaw, should we give him some credit there? Should these deals be praised? I, there's I, there no question in my, in my mind. I met with Mr. Kushner in 2017, 2018. He quite you know, respectfully solicited my views since I had worked on this issues for a half a dozen secretaries of state over a 20 plus year period. But he made it unmistakably clear to me then, and these are my, this is my interpretation of his words, that they were much more interested in what I now see as the 22 state solution, that is to say, expanding Israel's relations with the Arab states than they were ever interested in the two state solution. So they invested. They actually developed personal relationships with Mohammed bin Salman, Kushner, and the president, and Mohammed bin Zayed of the Emirates. They created, particularly for the Saudis, something that I railed against and wrote against and spoke against over the last several years, a, a veritable zone of immunity for Mohammed bin Salman to pursue reckless and ruthless policies in Yemen at home with respect to Lebanon, um, and certainly on the human rights side. Uh, but in that respect, cultivation of these countries, and Kushner made it clear that the Saudis and the Emiratis were the main, were going to be their main partners. Cultivation of these two led to a situation in which the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis, who had been developing relations over the last decade, subterranean, uh, largely out of fear of Iran and frustration and exhaustion with the Palestinian issue, basically were extremely responsive. And as a consequence, you had this breakthrough, um, first on the part of the Emirates, and then the Saudis obviously uh, acquiesced and allowed the Bahrainis to, to go next, which essentially broke the mold of what uh, many experts and, and uh, negotiators, myself included, 
believed was was un, unbreakable, and that is you had to have fundamental progress, if not a solution, to the Israeli-Palestinian problem before any Arab state, other than Egypt and Jordan, of course, would normalize relations with Israel. And paradoxically, what you're going to find, uh, assuming that things don't get out of control, and there is a lot of growing opposition to the sale of F-35s to the Emiratis now in Washington, among Republicans and Democrats, assuming that the terms of this deal hold, that the Netanyahu government won't, doesn't annex 30% or large parts of the West Bank and the arms sales go through, you're going to see a degree of warmth and um, normalization that in, in a matter of months and days, it's all, days and months, it's already occurred that have outstripped progress in the Israeli-Egyptian and Israeli-Jordanian peace processes, you know, by light years. And that, that credit, even though I, I would argue the bus on Saudi-Israeli cooperation, discreet, had already left the station, the Trump administration jumped on it and they invested heavily. So yes, they um, they deserve credit. And finally, at the beginning of January, Joe Biden wrote in Foreign Affairs magazine that America is back. It's ready to lead the world because it has done so well doing that job in the past. But does the United States have the dominance and the leadership it once have had? Should it be? Should Joe Biden be looking at solidarity rather than leadership with other nations? Well, this was a common theme uh, in, a, in a piece I, I just read by uh, uh, Peter Barnard, who argues that the U.S. should give up this pretension of leadership and focus on partnership and solidarity with others. I mean, I, I think there is some merit to this argument. It's a binary choice. First of all, we're surrendering to reality. The, the unipolar world that uh, that the Americans once functioned in has gone the way of the dodo. There, there are powers large and small who have risen, uh, all of which uh, have the capacity to frustrate American designs and frankly have been pretty successful at it. Americans are, are, are essentially bogged down in the greatest domestic crisis uh, of any president since Franklin Roosevelt. We need to understand that a successful foreign policy begins with domestic recovery, with domestic resilience. And I, I question, even though I believe that the United States still has a role to play in the world and can lead on certain issues, we need to demonstrate that, in fact, we deserve to lead. And I, as an American, I'm uh, having worked for half a dozen secretaries of state of both political parties. I mean, voted for <clears throat> candidates of both political parties. It's it's a, it's an embarrassment and a tragedy. For me, what's happened to, to to the United States? But I do believe we need a much more much more real, realist foreign policy, which aspires to lead using partnership on a, on a variety of issues, but claiming that we are now the indispensable power or the only power, and that people must listen to what we say. I think that's um, if we if the Biden administration pursues this, and I do not this approach, and I do not believe they will, um, then I think uh, we're we're headed for uh, we're headed for a disaster. Uh, I worked for uh, for George H. W. Bush and James Baker, <clears throat> eighty nine to 90, <clears throat> 92. It was the last time, in my judgment. 
that America was admired, respected, and and even feared, if that's a necessary uh, or a good quality uh, for the great power. I'm not sure it is. But admired and, and respected. That was the last time we had an effective foreign policy. Means were coordinated with ends. Goals were realistic. Um, <clears throat> opportunities were seized. Um, but that world is gone. And it's a cruel, much it's a cruel and unforgiving world out there for the United States. We have a role to play, and I think we'll play it. But I think we have to do so with prudence and an enormous amount given the last four years of real humility. Listen, Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you so much for joining us on States of Mind. There were some fascinating it was insights. A, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll move a little bit closer to home now, Brian. We know that Joe Biden is a proud Irish-American and even before he became president-elect, he said that he would stand up for the island of Ireland when it comes to, yes, it's that word, Brexit. Brexit time, yes. Um, I mean, I think this came to a head during the campaign in early September. You'll recall uh, the British government announced plans for the very controversial Internal Markets Bill, a controversial piece of legislation that's still making headlines this week and will continue to make headlines right up if stroke when a Brexit deal is finally done. And at the time, the US started to weigh in on this in early September. It first came from a man we mentioned earlier, Anthony Blinken, who is now the incoming Secretary of State at the time. He was Joe Biden's foreign policy advisor. And he tweeted, as the UK and EU work out their relationship, any arrangements must protect the Good Friday Agreement and prevent the return of a hard border. That was in early September. About a week later then, Joe Biden himself weighed in on this. And he tweeted that the Good Friday Agreement could not become a casualty of Brexit and that any trade deal between the US and the UK must be contingent upon respect for the agreement. So there it was in black and white on Twitter, Joe Biden very much weighing in and giving his view on the whole Brexit issue, particularly as it relates to Northern Ireland. And you got to ask the man himself, Brian, about that issue recently. I did, Jackie. As I mentioned there earlier, at the end of last month, I was up in Wilmington, Delaware, Joe Biden's hometown, as he unveiled his foreign policy team. He does all his big announcements in this old theatre in downtown Wilmington, Delaware, called the Queen Theatre. It's a nice, ornate front to it, a proper theatre look, big canopy with lettering and everything outside the front, old box offices, but of course, like every other theatre, I'm sure, during COVID-19, there are no plays, there are no performances. So he's kind of taken it over and he uses the stage to unveil his plans, to make his speeches, and then he leaves, he exits stage left, if you will, comes out the side door, and the media are gathered there and you shout your questions at them. Sometimes he stops, sometimes he doesn't. Yes, well, what happened was I, <laughs> the advantage of being tall and having a loud voice, I roared over a question about Ireland. And he was actually walking away from the media. He wasn't going to talk to the media that day. He was getting into his car. Just a quick question about Ireland, if that's okay. I know well, you can ask about Ireland anytime oh, you want. He heard Ireland. He stopped. He turned around. He came back. He said, you can ask me about Ireland anytime you want. As we mentioned before, Joe Biden, of course, very proud of his Irish roots. Happy to take a question about Ireland. And here's what he told me when I asked him about Brexit and what it might mean for Northern Ireland. With Brexit negotiations underway right now, what's your message to those negotiators? We do not want a guarded border. We want to make sure we work too hard to get Ireland worked out. And uh, I've talked with the uh, 
the British Prime Minister, I've talked with the Taoiseach, I've talked with others and talked with the French. The idea of having the, uh, the border north and south once again being uh, closed and require, it's just not right. We just got to keep the border open. That's great stuff, Brian, to get the mic in front of the man himself. So let's go deeper on this with our next guest who we spoke to uh, recently. Yeah, and full disclosure, things might sound a little funny here, we have to admit. Where was I, Jackie? I was in a car park (laughs) outside Boeing, the aircraft maker, last week because Michael O'Leary of Ryanair was over to buy some planes, as you do. We should do a top three uh, locations of where Brian has... Uh, recorded states R- of random mind. places <laughs> where I have recorded episodes but that's where we spoke to our next guest a fascinating guy and I think you're really going to enjoy this interview there we go Hello. Michael how are you I think we have Brian on the line there as well okay hi Michael can you hear me there I can Brian how are you doing I'm very well, sir. My apologies for coming to you late. I'm about to interview another Michael. Michael O'Leary of Ryanair is over here in Arlington, Virginia for the day, buying a few Boeing aeroplanes. Well, I I know the choice you're going to make. You have to go on. (laughs) <laughs> There's one Michael or the other. <laughs> no, you're, I'm, I'm all yours now, Michael. Sorry, we, we, oh, the interview is for I another little while. So, away. but anyway, look, I mean, do whatever you have to do. But I, I not at all. No, no, no. I'm good. I'm, I'm good to talk. We're joined now on the line by Michael Collins, Irish ambassador to the US from 2007 to 2013. Michael, thank you for joining us. I suppose first off, the obvious question is, what sort of president will Joe Biden be when it comes to Ireland? Well, 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 thank you, Brian. I think the answer to that is uh, he will be a very good president when, when it comes to Ireland. I think uh, this is tremendously good news for us. Uh, uh, president-elect Biden is, is somebody who is, who's, got, who's profoundly Irish. Uh, he's Irish deep in his DNA. And I think for us, that's pure gold. Um, I mean, you know, as well as anybody else, Brian, at this stage, how competitive it is uh, in terms of access to the White House, in terms of gaining attention, in terms of being on the agenda in a positive way in the United States, to have a kind of a relationship or uh, a link into the uh, the Oval Office um, uh, and to have the president um, connected with us in the way he is. I, I think this is tremendous. I, I think it's very timely. And I, and I think we can consider ourselves very, very fortunate indeed uh, that Irish America you know, um, is still strong and can still um, uh, inhabit uh, the very centre of power in the United States, whether in the in the Oval Office or on Capitol Hill. Of course, much of the focus right now is Brexit. And Joe Biden has said on a number of occasions, you know, no trade deal. You have to protect the Good Friday Agreement. You have to protect the border. But is there an economic reality here? Britain is a massive trading partner with the US. They have these huge ties going back years. They fight on the battlefield together. There's a very strong special relationship there, as they call it. Could there come a point where maybe the Northern Ireland situation isn't great and the border situation isn't great, but the pressure will come on the US to do a trade deal? Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, it wasn't our choice to put ourselves, uh, you know, in, in a situation where it might eventually come down to the United States uh, having to make choices because they, they will not want to make those choices. Of course, they won't. And uh, while we, uh, you know, consider ourselves as having a, a, a unique relationship with the United States, and I think that's the expression that I've always used, uh, if we have a unique relationship with the United States, you're absolutely right. The UK has a special relationship with the United States. So we should never, uh, I think, minimize that. We should we should respect that. Uh, you know, there are profound links, uh, uh, not just in terms of commerce, in terms of uh, economics between the United States uh, and the UK, but historically going way, way back, uh, you know, to the very foundation of the, of the country. So I, I don't think we, we, we should really uh, 
uh, it, it shouldn't be a case of one rather than the other. I think the ambition of the uh, the Biden administration and uh, knowing people like like uh, Tony Blinken and others and indeed Jake Sullivan, I think that clearly the ambition of the of the, of the new administration will be fr- to be, to be uh, friends of uh, to both, uh, no matter uh, how difficult that may be from time to time, and it could get very difficult depending on the outcome uh, to the Brexit negotiations. But uh, the Americans would not want to um, uh, to take sides, and we should not minimise the extent to which the Americans. Uh, uh, regardless of Brexit and regardless of anything else, we still want to make the most profoundly or to maintain the most profoundly close relations with the United Kingdom. That's a reality. Uh, Joe Biden might be um, might be Irish, uh, deep in his heart, and all the rest. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the we shouldn't minimise the extent to which the United Kingdom and Britain generally uh, is important to the United States and will also be important to President Biden. Michael, how deep? Do you think Joe Biden's affection is for Ireland and that dedication that we've been talking about? Because you were ambassador, the Irish ambassador to the US during his vice presidency. Is it is it there a little bit of it being all talk there or is it genuine? Well, I think it is. Uh, I think, Jackie, I think it is genuine. Um, I was there at a time, of course, when um, uh, 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 the vice president uh, even became more active, as it were, became more visibly active. Um, he initiated, um, and it was his initiative, uh, the, the breakfast which um, he hosted every um, St. Patrick's morning for the for the Taoiseach, um, visiting the United States, visiting Washington. That didn't just always be there. I mean, it was there because Joe Biden wanted it there because he wanted to express his Irishness uh, in this particular way. I think Joe Biden, interestingly enough, I think his Irishness or his sense of Ireland or his sense of Irishness uh, has, has, has grown deeper over the years. I remember, I can't remember which year it was now, maybe 2012, then I got a pile of documentation from the vice president's office, or maybe even the vice president himself, you know, with all his all the basic documentation relating to his Irishness, because he was he was researching it and he wanted to get it straight. So I think we've seen evidence of Irishness in Joe Biden that maybe wasn't even apparent uh, twenty or thirty years ago when he was more uh, when he was in congressional politics, Senate politics, or indeed more recently than that. So I think his Irishness has become uh, more uh, pronounced. Uh, I, I think we had a very celebrated moment in our embassy in Washington when the vice president came to the House uh, in November um, 2010, as we were are celebrating the, um, the, the the retirement of Chris Dodd, Senator Chris Dodd. Very unusual thing for uh, the vice president to come to a, a residence, even though we might think of Ireland, sure, why wouldn't he? But I think it, it needs to be said, it's a very unusual thing. Uh, but he came in any event, and the, the the hour he spent with us was one of pure emotion. Pure emotion, and uh, and uh, you know people in Ireland might smile a little bit at that, but it means an awful lot to him. Uh, when we eventually were saying farewell to him, there was um, a rendition of when Irish eyes are smiling, and he literally had tears coming down his face. Uh, reminded him of family, reminded him of his parents, and he, so he he wears his Irishness on his sleeve. Mm. And uh, you know you know what that means for policy. Well, let's wait and see. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we should be mindful of the fact that, that we have somebody in office now in the United States who has an Irish ear, who has an Irish way, and who, you know, from, from, from his very beginnings, you know, has a reflex uh, connecting him yeah. to, 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 to Ireland, which is, I'd say, we, we, we should cherish that. Because getting down to business, do you know, under the Trump administration, we saw that America first um, agenda yeah. and his policies very much directed towards America. Being first, and part of that was his pledge to bring farmer production in Ireland to the US. Do you think that will change under the Biden administration? 
Well, I, I think we should need to be a little bit careful about presuming that everything is going to change uh, just because uh, President Biden and the Democrats have come into power in the United States. There are some things that might change as much as we would uh, prefer that they did or uh, like that they would. Uh, and I think some of that is going to be in relation to that, that precisely around some of these issues to do with taxation, to do with uh, overseas investment, uh, uh, which could be a little bit challenging. Uh, uh, you know, I remember once back, I think it was 2012, during the election campaign, that I had to go to Chicago because uh, for some reason it had crept into the uh, the Democratic Manifesto or one of the documentations, something in relation to Ireland being a tax haven. Uh, you know, so uh, th- these are these issues that, 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 that Trump has been articulating are actually issues that at times are more typical to the Democratic side of the House. What was unusual about Trump is that he made them his own, uh, obviously reflecting his kind of um, his, the newfound connection with the, the, the Rust Belt and the Midwest and that type of thing. Um, uh, but I, I think he would be wrong to believe that some of these issues are, are going to go, I'm sorry, one would be wrong to believe that some of these issues are going to go away. I think, um, you know, the America first it will be expressed in a profoundly different way. Um, but 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 you may see some of that uh, that that reflects also in the democratic politics of president uh, the democratic uh, in the in, in the current the new administration coming in and those are issues that are not going to go away uh, there 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 has been a bit of a withdrawal to the united you know home as it were uh, uh, most manifest under president trump but i think that has been a trend that maybe predates president uh, trump and uh, you can see more evidence of it during president biden but of course it'll be expressed in a different way Michael, you mentioned that uh, there was a vice presidential visit to the embassy back in your day, which is unusual. There could well be a presidential visit to the embassy next year. Such are the Irish links. Are you jealous of your current uh, Irish ambassador, Dan Mulhall, that perhaps the diplomacy door will be that little bit easier to push, I wonder, under the Biden Biden administration? Well, no, I'm not envious. I had six uh, glorious years in the United States, uh, five of them during the the, the Biden administration. So obviously, with Dan and the very well. All I would say is that, you know, it's part of the challenge for an embassy like our own, and particularly in current circumstances with uh, President Biden uh, coming in, is that expectations are massive. Uh, You know, and you have seen that already. uh, And we've been talking about that to some extent. Expectations are massive as to what we can do, uh, and what's achievable for us, uh, uh, what's what's possible. Now, some some may well be possible, uh, but uh, we just need to temper it a little bit as well that, that everything may not be possible that we think uh, is, is achievable. So I think we are in an absolutely fantastic position. Uh, obviously, wish wish the embassy well. I hope to, I hope um, against hope, I suppose, that it will be possible to have a visit to the United States that circumstances with the virus will allow. Any predictions on who could be US ambassador to Ireland and what will that pick say about Joe Biden's relationship with Ireland? Well, uh, you know, this this can go on uh, for a little bit. Um, um, I've seen the, the, the speculation around Senator Chris Dodd, which, of course, would be uh, fantastic. But uh, I, I have no idea whether Senator Chris Dodd or former Senator Chris Dodd would be interested in this uh, position or not. Obviously, he has he has a place in the West of Ireland. I, I, I know that, of course. Um, I, I think it does make a it, it does make a big statement. Um, there's a whole process that this thing involves, you know, uh, before they make a, a, a final selection. Uh, but I think it does speak to uh, you know how the president uh, views Ireland. Uh, I would be very surprised if it wasn't somebody you know, obviously with deep Irish American uh, roots and, and a profile. Just who it's going to be in the end of the day, I don't know. But you'd like to believe, of course, uh, that with a, a new ambassador in place, uh, that he would be uh, here to welcome President Biden when he eventually does come to Ireland uh, during his uh, during his term in office.
Now, Jackie, you may remember the day before election day, you and I <laughs> put our reputations on the line and yes. uh, we wrote down predictions of, Dude. remind me again, it was who will win, who will win. how many electoral college votes yep. they'd get, who would win the Senate, who would win the House. We wrote it down the day before election day. We put it in a sealed envelope and we put it in a safe place. Mm -hmm. And I know lots of our listeners did that too. Mm -hmm. And lots of people have been getting in touch with us saying, what did you write down? What did you write down? What do you think? Will we open the envelopes? Oh, see, I don't know, because technically it's not over, is it? Because you still have those runoff elections in Georgia, which is happening in the new year, I want to say. So should we wait until then? Yes, you're right. Technically, I suppose we should. I we know. don't know the outcome yet. And actually, we should do an episode on the Georgia runoff. I find it quite interesting. Should, There's actually. two Senate seats up for grabs two Republican incumbents under pressure mm. from two Democratic challengers, and it will decide the control of the Senate. So yes, given that one of the questions on the envelope was to do with who will control the Senate, maybe we should hold off until the new year. Sorry to disappoint everybody. We've ruined Sorry. Christmas, Jackie, for the listeners. They all wanted to Don't know. get them confused with your Christmas we'll cards. Keep your year. envelope to 2021. Don't open it up just yet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but don't forget... And, and just to quote Donald Trump in a Kim Jong-un context, Jackie, my envelope is bigger than yours. Let, oh, it, let it be known. <laughs> well, on that... On that note, don't forget, we are still rocking on with States of Mind and you can get in contact with us before we wrap up this podcast around inauguration time at statesofmind at rte.ie. If there are any questions you want answered before we go into a new administration about the old administration, the new administration, election 2020, let us know statesofmind at rte.ie. That's great, Jackie. Chat to you soon. Chat to you soon.